0: me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, and if uh, if you didn't bring your Bible this morning, there may be one in the rack in front of you, and the uh, passage we'll be reading from will be on page 982. Philippians chapter 4. This is actually the last sermon in this series. We'll be done with the letter of Philippians after this, and We're actually taking it old school. We're going to go into the book of Exodus after this. And so we're going to go visit the Old Testament for a little bit. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. The Apostle Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we thank you for this word and pray, Lord, that you would bless it. That you would aid our understanding, that you would help us to hear. And not just to hear, but to listen intently. Open our hearts, Lord. Help us to receive the seed and to bear fruit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of reminder, we've been working our way through Philippians under this heading, right? How the good news of Jesus transforms the way that we live. We looked at the life of Jesus in John's gospel for over a year, and then I wanted to turn to Philippians because I don't know that we often think about this in this way, that Jesus doesn't just come and... Pay for our sins. Jesus doesn't just come, though that would be great in and of itself. Jesus doesn't just come and rescue us out of our sin. But he actually, that same grace that saves us, actually begins to work in us. That Jesus' life transforms our lives. And right at the middle of the book of, the, of Philippians is, uh, Paul gives this kind of beautiful poem about the downward and Or trajectory of Jesus, how Jesus makes himself low, even to the point of death, and then is raised up on high, right? He comes back from the dead and then he ascends to heaven. And that down up speaks to us as well, right? It it speaks to our own down up, right? The, the, The downward and upward trajectory of Jesus works in us that which pleases God. And that's really the goal. Make no mistake about it, that the goal, the end for which we are rescued, is to please God. To live lives that are daily made new, so that God is glorified. And we've looked at several different aspects of that. We've talked about unity, and we've talked about humility, instead of pride. And over the past few weeks, we've talked about anxiety and peace. And how in Christ, we can have joy and we can have peace in the face of all of the things that worry us. And just as a side note, this summer, uh, we are offering a, a special summer growth group uh, on Wednesday nights. Uh, using Tim Lane's book on anxiety, if that's something that would be interesting to you, that's not like a, you know, a clinical class, you know, this is not a counseling opportunity, but it's just an opportunity to gather as believers during the summer uh, and talk about the things that worry us. Actually, even if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, but you find worry and anxiety a pressing problem, I encourage you to be a part of this growth group if you're interested in that. Um, Paul Connor, uh, Paul, would you raise your hands kind of, wave. he has more information on that. You can talk to him after the worship service, because that obviously is an issue in so many of our lives. But so Paul now here starts wrapping the letter up. He starts saying, thank you. in the last, uh, this last section, what we're going to see is that the good news of Jesus leads us to contentment and leads us to generosity, that the life of Jesus works in us contentment and generosity. How so? Uh, just to kind of give you some background to what's going on here in the letter where Paul is, when he says, I'm grateful, I rejoice that you have revived your concern for me. Let's just, well, before we, before we do the background, let me, let me just throw this out there to you. When I say contentment, Where do you go? Who are you with? When I say content, what do you have? What do you not have? Contentment is defined as a state of satisfaction and happiness. And so when I say it, all of us probably go to a particular place or to a particular set of circumstances... And what's really interesting is that in the case of Paul, you would not have defined his circumstances as contentment. Paul is under house arrest in Rome for preaching about Jesus. Which means, pretty sure, that he was chained to a guard, if not 24 hours a day, most hours in the day. Not only that, but Paul, there are actually people in Rome who are actively working against Paul. Now, they're preaching Jesus, but they're doing it to hurt Paul. And so, both from within the church and from outside the church, Paul is in a pretty rough spot. And so, the Philippians... Uh, a church that he had planted towards the beginning of his ministry, they send a man named Epaphroditus to bring a gift to Paul, a care package, basically, to meet Paul's needs. And so that's what Paul's talking about. When he says, I'm grateful, I rejoice that you have revived your concern for me, that's what he's talking about. But then he says something really interesting. After he says, it's almost... This is not by the way probably how you would want to say thank you to somebody, right? Paul kind of gives a backhand I guess you could say it's backhanded, right? He he says, "I'm really glad you guys have revived your concern for me finally." Not that I speak of being in need. Right? Uh he he almost kind of backs off a little bit. Like thanks but not really. And that's not what Paul is doing. Let's look at uh, look at Philippians 4:10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And so Paul is genuinely glad that they have revived their concern. He's genuinely glad, really very happy that you guys have, have met my needs But let's talk about needs for a second. Even if you hadn't. Even if you hadn't sent that gift, I'm okay. I've learned how to be content. Does that seem like a remarkable thing to you? It certainly does to me. I think the people who know me best would wish that I would learn how to be content. Right? The people that I work with, the people that I live with, it's never good enough. It never measures up. There's always more to reach the pinnacle. Paul says, I've reached it. I've learned how to be content. Look at verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret. Paul is using a phrase that Greek mystery religions would use, right? Think, um, think in lesser terms, probably of fraternities or sororities or organizations like the Masons, right? These these mystery religions would use this language to talk about progressing up the levels of initiation, right? That, that little bit by little bit, you would be initiated into the secret knowledge until you had fully attained, right? Paul's saying, I've been through the initiation process, and I have attained the knowledge. I have learned the secret of how to have a little and how to have a lot. Of how to be hungry and how to be full. What is the secret? Paul, Paul has increasingly reached this point of detachment to stuff. Wouldn't that be nice? Paul has reached this point of detachment where he can look at stuff... And say, it's great to have it, and it's okay to not. I've learned how to be content. Now, can you say that, right? When you go back to your place, your happy place, your place of contentment, it usually involves having something, or being somewhere, or being with certain people. Paul says, I've learned how to be satisfied. When I have... And when I have not, regardless of if I'm at the beach or in a prison cell, I've learned how to be content. I've learned the secret. What is the secret? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a overly used and often misused verse. I'm pretty sure that. At the gym I worked out at, at the church down the street from my house growing up, they put this like above the bench press machine, right? Um, This is not about that, okay? This is not about the bench press, right? Paul's talking about contentment. Paul's talking about being satisfied, whether it's good or bad on the outside. And so, to our definition of contentment, this state of happiness ...and satisfaction, let's add this definition. Gospel contentment is different from regular contentment. Because gospel contentment is a state of happiness and satisfaction... ...that isn't found in outward circumstances. Gospel contentment is not found in outward circumstances, but in Christ himself. I can do all things in him who strengthens me... And so we could say it this way, contentment, true gospel contentment, is a heart that is settled. Right? When I, when I hear the word content, I imagine my heart finally being able to just breathe a sigh of relief and say, mm, this is good. Right? And for Paul, contentment is a heart that is settled on Christ. And not outward condition. Not outward condition. How do we learn this secret? How do we go about attaining, right? Learning the secret that Paul has learned. One thing we could say is this. Gospel contentment is the opposite of covetousness. Now there's a big fancy church word, right? If you don't know what the definition of covetous means, you know how it feels. To covet means to long after, pine after what someone else has. It means to want that which does not belong to you. It means to, to, uh, to imagine that if you had that thing, or if you had that person, that you would be whole, that you would be complete. It's this It's this aching crater in your soul that imagines that if I just had that thing, this would be full. If I just had that person, I would be okay. If I were like them, I would be better. Gospel contentment is the opposite of that. Gospel contentment is the opposite of that aching crater that longs to fill itself with other people's personalities or possessions or relationships. So, the first step is acknowledging that we are covetous people, that we want other things to fill that void. Second to that, we learn gospel contentment by actually admitting our weaknesses, right? When Paul says, I can do all things in Him who strengthens me, that by implication is saying, I'm missing something. I'm lacking something. I don't have the power to make myself content. And just and just think about that. Think about how much you strive. Right, this, this addresses... Two tendencies in our hearts. The first, the first tendency, the first person, we'll view them as persons. The first person is the controller. Right? If I can just manipulate everything the way that I like it, I will have satisfaction. So, if I can get that, the right amount of work hours, I will have enough money. My bank account will be full and I will be content. If I can know the right people, if I can put the right people in places, I will have manipulated and controlled enough that I will be content. And if you are the controller, you know that it never stops. You know that you just keep going because you never manage to fill the crater up. Which leads us then to the second tendency the quitter. And actually, this is how dysfunctional I am, many of us are. You can be both the controller and the quitter. Because here's what the quitter does. The quitter has tried to control and control and control, and it hasn't worked. And so they just resign themselves to their fate. They just throw their hands up and they say, it doesn't matter what I do. But this person is not content. Do you know how you know? They keep griping. They keep complaining. Instead of actively trying to control people aggressively, they passive aggressively try to control people with side handed comments like, I wish you would come to visit more. Or, I wish so and so would really stop doing that to me. Right? So, they've given up. They've quit. And yet, they're not content, they're not at peace. There's still a lot of internal struggle. Gospel contentment, on the other hand, says, I'm a controller, or I'm a quitter. I admit that I keep trying to manipulate and turn things to make myself happy. It's not working. Jesus, I need you to do it. And that's really what Paul is saying. When Paul says, through him who strengthens me... That word for strengthen is where we get our word dynamite. So the power is not in you. Admitting your weakness is another step towards gospel contentment. Not trying to manipulate everybody and not just throwing, yourself, throwing your hands up in self-pity, but acknowledging your weaknesses and saying, Lord Jesus, would you work this in my life? Life. So when we do that, how how then should we speak to our hearts when we see those tendencies rising up within us? What should we say to ourselves? How could we pray for ourselves? Proverbs 30 is helpful to me here. Proverbs 30 verses eight and nine. The writer says this talking to the Lord. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so you hear what, what he's saying there. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches, because if you give me a lot of poverty, the, the, the author, the wisdom writer, he knows his own heart. And he says, if you give me too much, if you give me too much wealth, then I'll forget you. I'll have the tendency to believe that I did this by myself and I won't need you, Lord. So don't give me too much. But don't don't make me destitute either. Because if you do that, then I'll think, God doesn't want to help me. God isn't for me. And I'll try to, again, do it myself and steal it from someone else and so profane your name. It's interesting how on both ends of the spectrum, it's really the same disease. Wanting to do it yourself rather than trusting the Lord. And so our prayer for ourselves could be, give me neither poverty nor riches. That would help us to be content. John Burridge wrote these words in the mid-1700s, the hymn that we have sung before here. This would be a good way to pray for yourself, to speak to yourself. He wrote, Jesus, cast a look on me, give me sweet simplicity, make me poor and keep me low, seeking only thee to know. All that feeds my busy pride, cast it evermore aside. Bid my will to thine submit, lay me humbly at thy feet. I love this line. Make me like a little child, of my strength and wisdom spoiled. Seeing only in thy light, walking only in thy might. That's how gospel contentment is formed in us as we look more and more to Jesus. So, how does that, how does, so that's how the good news affects our contentment in an increasing sense. What about our generosity? It's interesting that Paul links these two together. It's really a a twin sister. Gospel contentment and gospel generosity are really twin sisters. Now, you can be, you don't, there's a caveat here. You don't have to have. Gospel contentment. In fact, you don't even have to know Jesus to be generous. You don't have to get the gospel to be generous. Right? There's, history is full of people who don't know Jesus and have given away lots of their wealth. But here's the difference. Right? Here's the way the world can you contentment, generosity, etc. Right? I can give as long as I have plenty. And so this is kind of the standard way we think about it, right? Wealthy nations, wealthy companies, wealthy families, wealthy people. If you have lots of wealth, you have a moral obligation to help those not. And so, plenty, contentment, my tank is full, leads to generosity. And there's truth in that, but in the God, you don't have to have plenty. To be generous. Okay, gospel, you're content whether you have plenty or you don't. And it's out of that contentment that you can give whatever you have. You don't have to wait for the tank to be full. In fact, the people that Paul's talking to, they were almost in abject poverty. Paul tells the Corinthians in his second letter to them, but these Macedonians, the Philippians, gave out of their poverty. They understood that because God was taking care of them, they could give generously. And so when we think about contentment and generosity together, don't make the mistake that says, as long as my tank is full, because this is how we think, right? As long as my tank is full, then I can gladly give. Now. Now. Let me back up and give another caveat. Paul says in verse ten, "I'm glad that you have revived your concern. I know that you were concerned, but you didn't have opportunity. So we can acknowledge, even in, within this room, that there are some people who would like to be generous, and yet they do not have the opportunity to be. And so, we want to be gracious in the way that we apply, just because we don't have." doesn 't mean that you should always give. there may be some circumstances in your life that prevent you from having opportunity to to give sacrificially. So we don't want to say that, be fair, but I think the Gospel changes the way we think about what we do with our time and our treasure all right and just to do that let 's look at the way Paul describes this, and as we look at this, I want you to think about these things as you consider. Why you put money in the plate. Or what organizations you give to. Um, Paul describes Christian generosity in three different ways. First, verse 14. He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. That word partnership and sharing are They have the same root word, sharing. That's one way that Paul talks about giving, that when we give to one another, we are actually partnering together. That when you give to a missionary in gospel work, you are partnering with them in their mission, so much so that it's not just their work, but it's also yours. And so when you give... You are linking arms with the people that you are giving to. Because not all of us can be sent the way that Paul was sent. But all of us can partner in that work. And so Paul says that giving is partnership. And then he says something interesting in verse 17. Giving is partnership, giving is also spiritual investment. Look at what he says in verse 17. Well, let me back up and read 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul, and this is a, this is a good rule of thumb for anybody who watches TV preachers. Okay. Hey, you should probably stop. Um, just kidding. Paul was uncomfortable asking people for money. In fact, in some of his churches, he refused to ask for money because he was worried... Well, in the ancient world, it's the same as it is today. People who constantly ask for money seem like they're dishonest. And in some places... People would try to use the amount that they gave to manipulate Paul's message. Paul, you shouldn't preach that way. I, I gave you a lot of money last week. And so in some cases, Paul refused to accept gifts, rather choosing to just work with his own hands because he didn't want to be accused of something underhanded. So Paul was uncomfortable asking for money. But it's interesting what he says to the Philippians here. He says, not that I seek the gift, I'm not necessarily seeking your money. What I'm seeking is your spiritual increase, the fruit that increases to your account. So, let's look at it this way. You've got a, you have an earthly bank account. Most of us understand what that means. Did you know you also have a heavenly bank account? And that those two don't necessarily correspond to each other? In fact, Jesus says we should intentionally try to attach ourselves less and less to things that will pass away, to things that can be broken, to things that can be stolen. Right? Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Paul is picking that up. And what he is telling them and what he is telling us is that the more you give away, the more your bank account increases. Not on earth, but on heaven. The more you empty your earthly account for the sake of the gospel, the more your heavenly account increases. You grow spiritually when you give. Paul says, that's what I'm seeking. I'm, I'm not seeking the gift. Because again, I've learned to be content. Whether I'm glad that you sent it. I'm glad that you gave it. But you know what? I would have made it. God's going to take care of me. But what I'm glad to see in you is you growing. Now, on earth, the CEO and the widow on Social Security look very different. Their accounts are in very different conditions. But in heaven, those two may swap. And so that means that even though you might be on the poverty line here, In heaven, you would be rich beyond imagination. The question is, what are you doing with it? Are you desiring to see that fruit increase, accrue to your account? Or are you emptying your earthly account on things that will be destroyed, on things that will rust, on things that will be stolen? Paul says, I seek the fruit that accrues to your account. And then finally, he says is an act of worship. Verse 18. I've received full payment. I'm well supplied. I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul is picking up Old Testament language. He's talking about the sacrificial system. He's talking about Noah. After the flood, Noah got off the ark and he... And he made a sacrifice, and it said that the pleasing aroma went up to God, and he smelled it and was satisfied. And so, when we talk about worship in the Old Testament, so much of it was giving these proper, beautiful, fragrant sacrifices. Well, that's gone in the New Testament. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. But that doesn't mean we're done worshiping. That Paul is equating the old sacrifices... With our giving in the New Testament. That's, that's why we pass the plate, by the way, during the worship service. Because it's actually part of our worship to God. That we give Him our treasure. It's part of worship. And when we give, it pleases God. It pleases the Lord. So... Let me just say this, because I I want to be like Paul. Uh, I am very uncomfortable asking people for money, and so I want I want us to think in the way that the scripture tells us to think. Yes, my family eats because you put food on in, in the. I mean, you put food. On, yeah, you put food on my table. Yes, that's true. You put food on my table, and you keep these lights on. And the AC, which is probably more important to us than the lights, right? You do that when you give. And yet, I don't seek the gift. I want to seek the fruit that accrues to your spiritual bank account. I want us to give to God worship that is pleasing to Him, a fragrant offering. Is that the way we think about our treasure? Is that the way we think about our talents when we Give them to the Lord. That's the way Paul tells us to think about it. And then there's, he gives us this promise that undergirds it all in verse 19. He says, my God will supply every need of yours. So what do, you, what do you need that you don't have? What do you need that you don't have? God will give it. My God will supply every need of yours. I imagine many of us really aren't in that needy of a position after all. What do you need that you don't have? God will supply every need according to His riches in glory. No so... If you were to go to DHR and you were to apply for um, disability or you were to apply for food stamps, what they would do is they enter into a process where they evaluate your financial need, right? And they determine, okay, you're bringing in this much, and so we will give you this much. And so your wealth is determined by your need. But God doesn't do that. He says... He will supply every need of yours according to his riches, not your need out of his abundant goodness. He will gladly give. He's no miser. He's not looking at you and saying like, oh, you earned a little bit extra money. Let's cut that down some. Right. God gives out of his abundant goodness to supply every need that we have. All of the riches of glory in Christ are ours. And so, it's my failure to believe that that undercuts my own generosity. Because I fail to believe that God will supply every need, I fail to be generous. Or, to tie both points together, to the degree that I am not content, to that degree I will not be generous. Because I'm worried that I'm going to lose something. And I... Preach this so that you and I will get to this point. But how does that happen? How are we transformed to think in this way? Paul gives it to us twice. I can do all things in him. According to the riches of his glory in Christ. Jesus is what spurs us on to contentment. And generosity. Do you want a settled heart? Do you want to live with a settled, satisfied heart and, and live with, an, with open hands toward others? Look to Jesus, whose heart was settled on the Father's will. And because his heart was settled on the Father's will, he opened up his hands. And received the nails of your sin and my sin. Jesus, out of his contentment, generously gives to us. And if we would learn contentment and generosity, we must first and always look to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray with Augustine, the old saint, who said, And what you will, and give what you command. Oh Lord, we know we ought to be content. We know that we are restless people. We look for our contentment. We look for our satisfaction in so many things that are passing away. And so you call us to, to something better. God, would you give that something better? Would you anchor our souls on Christ? And may we learn that the person who possesses Christ possesses all. There is nothing I need that you have not given. And when I believe that, when I am in Christ, believing that and trusting Him, I can live open-handedly. Oh God, give what you command. Lord, for those who... Are struggling to know you. Or refusing that you exist altogether. I pray that you would settle their hearts on you. In Christ. That they would find true contentment that lasts. And be at peace. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.